Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. We've got a slight change in the format to this episode. We are going to flip things around and have Adam Lawrence host this one. It's really great to discuss issues with friends and peers, and that's what's happening here. Fortunately, Kwesi, Adam and Rupesh were happy for me to record this call, as I thought it might be interesting for our listeners to hear. Kwesi Affam was on the Rodcast back in episode 11, and as a reminder, works at Barclays in risk analysis, as well as investing in his own property deals. Adam Lawrence has been on the Rodcast a couple of times and you can find out all about what he does in episode 14, but in short, he buys an awful lot of houses and has a background in wealth management and the gambling industry. And Rupesh Taylor is the founder and CEO of Everest Research. This is his first time on the Rodcast, so absolute pleasure having him. His company provides research to hedge funds and specialises in distressed debt as well as providing reports that cover the full capital structure of companies, including equity valuations they really do have some absolutely fantastic reports and information so please do go and check them out and we'll leave a link to the website in the show notes Um, as always incredibly grateful for these three fantastic contributors Uh, just as a reminder please do subscribe and also if you can leave us a uh, review on itunes it would be much appreciated it helps others to find our podcast so without further ado i will hand over to adam to host this episode of the rodcast intro for myself then so adam lawrence serial residential property investor very much buy and hold Vanilla sort of stuff, single lets, lots of them, agencies and associated businesses also bolted on. So, Rod? Rod Turner. I uh, invest in, in property and through my development company as well, mostly in London and Manchester, and have been doing so for the last 13 years. Fab Rupesh? Thanks, Adam. Uh, Rupesh Taylor. Uh, I run an investment research firm, Everest Research, uh, focused on distressed debt, uh, special situations investing for hedge funds and distressed debt funds. Fantastic. And Kwesi? Hello, Kwesi Afram. I'm a, a property investor, mainly specialising in HMOs in northwest London. Long-time banker, career banker, I guess, specialising in strategic analysis. Fabulous. Right, so we've got a bit of a loose agenda, which I thought we could just work through, so we give it as much structure as possible. And first item on there was disposable income. So, Kwesi, do you want to pick that one up to start with? Sure. Um, did you have anything in particular? Any? Well, it's, I mean, direction obviously seems relatively obvious, but I suppose what pressures there'll be on them and where we might get surprises, I suppose, would be would be an ideal direction to go in. That's a great, I mean, to be honest, this is a great point for you to start on. Last time we spoke, um, one of the things that you mentioned right before I dropped two things, you mentioned universal basic income and uh, Rupesh mentioned inequality in his response to one of Rod's questions. Those two things are really interesting because they're two things that are massively on my website and will be for the next couple of weeks at least. In fact, straight after this call, I have a presentation on the work I'm doing on this. So I talk through what I'm analyzing and the research I'm doing specifically on those two things and how that impacts and we can talk about how that impacts property later, but I'll talk about it maybe more at the macro level 
income. So I think from, from a, purely from an analytical and research perspective and what's on my work stack, we're looking at income uh, inequality and economic inequality, looking at COVID as a driver for compounding a lot of the historic inequalities. We've already seen that with a lot of the health inequalities that are going on, disproportionate impact on certain parts of society. But some of the more second order impacts of that will be that uh, people losing their people who can't work right now, who can't work from home, are probably more likely to come from lower income, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So they're going to be disproportionately affected. When we go back into lockdown, the people who are more exposed to getting sick are going to be the people who are in the lower socioeconomic end of the scale. And so that's going to have a disproportionate impact on them and their incomes as a result. This is why the, the question about universal basic income comes into the equation. Whereas uh, maybe even just three months ago, this was fringe politics, and not something that anybody would have ever thought possible. Jeremy Corbyn was talking about it, Bernie Sanders was talking about it, but they were fringe politicians. Overnight, it went to become mainstream in some way, shape or form in many Western countries, especially ones where you have conservative governments really, and Republican governments even are adopting this type of policy. Places like Spain are doing it too, but they're more socialist anyway. But it's about the shift, the shift and the normalization of this level of ideology, if you like. So income, people's incomes are gonna be disproportionately affected by this crisis, I think that goes without saying. Then you have government supporting a lot of the income gap, um, supporting the demand side, if you like, by paying people for furlough, not working, reducing the pressure on unemployment, but I guess creating other pressure in other parts of the economy. The question really about income, I think, is what happens when they try to roll back a lot of these things. So in the short term, I think the income, is, there's not gonna be a massive income disparity because governments are gonna support it. But then really it becomes what happens if they try to roll back a lot of this uh, stuff that we're doing. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, Rupesh? Do you wanna, do you wanna um, critique or add to that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think Kwesi's you know, hit the nail on the head there. I think, you know, you know, my concern wouldn't be so much in the short term, whereas you know, Kwesi said you've got these um, you know, furloughing schemes and you've also got kind of support for the self-employed which obviously isn't going to cover everyone you know, to the full extent that they you know, may have been used to, but it's, it's certainly a very useful support. Now, the longer the lockdown goes on, whether it's kind of uninterrupted or sort of interspersed with periods of easing, you know, that, that's where kind of you know, the pressure can build because you know, how sustainable is it for the government to fund you know, a significant amount of the private sector wage bill for, you know, for, a, you know, for an, you know, an ever greater period of time? And you know, this, this is, you know, I think, one area where, you know, maybe the UK has, uh, you know, has, has been, uh, you know, if, if you look at the overall fiscal supports to the economy, less generous than you've had in the EU and in the US. So if you're looking at sort of um, your fiscal measures announced in the different countries, you know, on, on our figures, at least you've got the US at about 10% of GDP. You've got the, Euro, the EU at around 20% and the UK sort of close to 1%. Now, obviously, no one knows exactly kind of what the, you know, the eventual fiscal cost of all these policies will be. But you know, the, the, you know, so, I mean, on, on, on that grounds, I mean, it, we would assume that the UK government, if they need to extend the lockdown you know, on, on an ongoing basis, they will continue to provide the, uh, you know, the coronavirus job retention scheme as well as the, the, the support for self-employed. So I think as long as lockdown goes on and as long as governments feel they have the capacity to continue those schemes, it will support disposable incomes, um, certainly, you know, certainly at that kind of level of support now obviously you know people that are used to earning higher they, there may be some loss of disposable income i think the 
the issue really is, quite as I said, is uh, you know, if, if I look across kind of businesses, there will be businesses where the long-term level of demand post-lockdown resets at a much lower level. And you know, then, then your, you know, then your issue is, you know, you know, whilst you, you know, whilst furloughing schemes are all great, if, if if the demand level for your business has reset on a long-term basis, you you you, you actually want your staff uh, to be working, not being furloughed. And to the extent they're working, you can't afford the same level of employment numbers uh, as previously. So, I think kind of the, you know, that that's where the, you know, where the issue is, and that's where I think kind of. The Rishi Sunak scheme on uh, job retention you know, is, is ill-conceived, actually, because you know I, I can think of a number of businesses where you know, you know where companies have uh, a need to continue to operate. There is still a revenue opportunity, or at least they believe there is a revenue opportunity. But actually, the incentive structure that's set by a furloughing scheme incentivizes you to you know, is to idle people rather than have them working, but have them working on some you know, with some level of employment subsidisation. And, and I think that's the issue. When people go back, the, the level of demand may be lower for an extended period of time, but you can't support the level of employment that you did previously. And that's where kind of the, you know, it's that transition, that I think, is going to sort of put some, pre- some more noticeable pressure on disposable income at the lower end. Makes lots of sense. Rod, do you want to add to that, mate? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I totally agree with, with all that. And I think... Um, one point to, to just make on top of that is if we're looking at it in the short term, prior to the COVID crisis, if you looked at household debt based on the household income, what you'd find in is, is in a lot of these higher value areas, such as London and the Southeast, they've put themselves possibly into uh, quite a precarious position in the short term as we've got these furlough or wage cuts and you've got higher earners that are still staying in work because there's no point in being furloughed at two and a half grand when you might have been earning far more than that and you might have 50% of your uh, household living expenses on on your rental or mortgage costs. So I think short term, actually, some higher earners will be at risk if if they have been basing their household debt on previous earnings, which I think quite a lot of people had been doing previous to that. Uh, and I think uh, Kwesi just made us just a really great comment on that rollback and actually the key to that. And then Rupesh went on to kind of go into more detail as well. And I think that point of the rollback is where we will see um, those lower sort of socioeconomic. They're going to be the ones that really do struggle. And I think there's another great point from uh, Rupesh just about that demand from of certain businesses and having furloughed employees obviously is a, a strange concept when you when you kind of think about it yeah. on your own thank you go on Rupesh yeah absolutely from what you raise, I, mean, you know, I guess the way sort of I think about it is you know imagine you're a business and your you know your level of revenue you think is going to reset at 70 percent 60 percent or 70 percent of what it was pre-coronavirus you still have the business but you need to resize your cost base and you know, if you need a certain number of employees to run that business, you can't achieve, you can't continue to operate without, you know, without that number of employees. So your solution is you have to go back to them. They need to be, um, they need to be working. They can't be furloughed. Your solution is that you have to cut their pay level. And, and, that, and that's, you know, that, that's kind of where I think that sort of pressure on disposable income can, can come from. And that, that's kind of potentially across the board, whether it's, you know, the, you know I, I agree with what, what Rod's saying about sort of, you know, the high income levels as well. But I think that, you know, that, that phenomenon, I think you could, you could see sort of across, across really the the, the full spectrum. 
so unemployment plus lower pay in work effectively as a kind yeah, of double yeah. double bubble effect, yeah. which I, I completely yeah, agree with. I, I, Unless you have kind of um, your businesses being more optimistic about the revenue outlook, which I, I mean, I, I kind of don't really see at present. I think yeah, everyone's going to be quite nervous about what is the, you know, how long lasting is the damage from this. Um, People there want are to offsets. see evidence, <laughs> might they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are offsets. I mean, I think as you point to some of the later points of the agenda, which we'll which we'll come on to, but yeah, you know, I, I think most businesses will take the cautious perspective. So I, I propose we probably try and put the next couple together, actually, because oil is very um, topical this week with what's happened to West Texas Intermediate and the price going negative for the first time in history and all the rest of it. So costs of living, do you see the cost, the underlying cost of living increasing, I guess, as businesses try to make up margin potentially to, to, to deal with uh, a worse economic climate? And then how do you see oil impacting the economy over the next couple of years? So, Rupesh, can we start with you on that one, please? Yeah, no, so I, I think it's a, it's a strange one because I think the, you know, the, the near-term pressure is you know, immensely disinflationary or deflationary. Um, you know, you, you, you know, we're looking here at sort of significant aggregate demand contraction, at least from the, you know, from the private sector. Um, uh, you, know, uh, you have businesses trying to, you know, to pump out revenue at, you know, you, you, you know, at any level that's really sort of feasible for them. I don't think anyone's really going to be trying to sort of push up pricing to offset kind of, you know, the, the, you know, the loss of volume. So, you know, I think kind of the, you know, the near-term pressure is, is deflationary, disinflationary, you know, the, the sharp drop in oil compounds that. But I think the, the other dimension to this is really, you know, what we mean by cost of living. Because I think, you know, if you were to take a sort of a, a, a you know, a, a common basket pre and post coronavirus and look at what is the cost of it, I don't think you'll see, be seeing any sort of, uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, that, that's not so much where I think you'll see the lower cost of living actually coming through. I think the lower cost of living, living will be primarily that the basket changes. So, you know, the prime example of that right now is everything that we would have spent on general retail, uh, with a few exceptions, leisure, restaurants, um, petrol, all of these things we're, we're no longer spending on, uh, at least for the time being. And I think even once you have an easing of lockdown, that's not going to come back. So I, I think kind of, you know, talking about the cost of living is kind of difficult because I think the the basket of what people are going to be spending on has, has changed. So it's not necessarily a question just looking at, you know, like for like uh, you know, comparisons on a basket. I think the, the composition of what people are spending on has, has changed. So I think near term, uh, you, know, you know, you know, quite deflationary. Longer term, I think all the monetary, all the fiscal stimulus that you've had, the drop in oil as well, eventually will be stimulative for overall aggregate demand. So I think there will be sort of potentially some uh, kind of longer term uh, reversion of inflation. But I think in the near term, it's, it's disinflationary to deflationary. Yep. Okay, makes sense. Rob, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think great point there on how the basket is changing. I definitely agree with that. In terms of kind of like the staples such as food and shelter and really at the moment internet is a massive one as well and utilities so energy obviously again deflationary food is is one we kind of brexit's been put to the back of everyone's mind and i wonder whether there could be an issue here with um with again with imports and things like that in in regards to like the oil i think i think uh, what we'll see is you'll have certain industries that will be able to take advantage of this like agricultural and um, 
and, and certain other industries that consume large amounts of oil that, that should be able to take advantage and do well, which kind of pushes a bit of economic growth there. So I think um, obviously there'll be a downside of all those involved in the oil industry. In America, I think they said that 2 million people are, are uh, directly employed there. So that, that will have an issue and the same over here. And also in terms of kind of shares, earnings and things like that. But I do think longer term, um, as Rupesh said, uh, you've got some economic growth from some of those consumer industries that consume the oil coming through. Ag- agree on the deflationary pressure okay. early on. But again, this is kind of like the futures contracts too. So it's very dependent on what happens with all these other moving parts like OPEC and their agreement to or, or non-agreement to uh, cut production and, and things like that. And also when lockdowns end because people can't consume unless they're, uh, unless they're allowed out and about and businesses uh, are able to open. Great stuff. Thank you. And I very much, it's difficult to disagree with any of that. Crazy, do you want to add anything to that lot? I think on the oil point, so one of the WTI in particular, I think, I guess for me, the key question here is whether the, what happened uh, yesterday in particular was a technical thing because the futures contract expiring yesterday or whether this more underlying, so from an analytical perspective, whether the indicators actually pointing in a particular direction or whether this is just a technical blip. And so it was interesting for me, at least looking at it slightly below the surface. So WTI in particular, um, just a few weeks ago, it was, uh, yeah, a month ago, actually, the, the expectation was that by the end of March, there would be a deficit in salt and storage of WTI. So that was on the 21st of March, there was expected to be a deficit. So it's supposed to have lots of storage space. And between now and then and now, there is an oversupply where in parts in Texas, they've run out of storage. So the more for me actually is more interesting is what's, the, what's happened and why is that happening? It's very regional. I think more important is what happens to the broader international markets, Brent crude, and how that changes and how the, but what, what, what will tell is that like WTI, what happened with that is a leading indicator because it tell you the story about what's going on in a very specific part of a specific market. And if that pattern then starts to extrapolate across other markets. So I'll take, let me put it like this. Another way to put it is you have tank, you have um, oil that's being delivered to the US, whether that's Brent crude, WTI, whatever, oil is being delivered to the US, but all of that oil needs to be stored somewhere in the US. So if Texas has now run out of storage, the oil that was already coming to the US to go to storage, we need to go somewhere else. Then those locations are gonna run out of storage until the US is full up and then those oil tankers won't be able to go to the US, they'll have to go somewhere else. And that's the kind of knock-on effect. And I remember in 2000, this happened last in 2009. Um, The interesting thing then when that happens, that was two years after the crisis. So we've been in a recession for a number of years and this was one of the impacts of that recession. Like I mentioned earlier, this has happened in the space of about three weeks this time around. So that as an indicator to, to someone like me is very powerful. Um, the order of impact that, that, that has had so quickly has been quite surprising. The other thing is the fact that it went negative, which obviously I'm not sure if a lot of people picked up on. That to me is the most interesting thing. The fact that it went negative means um, there's a lot to unpack there. So. One of the reasons is because those futures contracts, as you mentioned, is a futures contract, can go negative. Not all contracts can go negative. 
The other element is that that WTI futures contracts require physical delivery. Not all futures contract require physical delivery, so you actually need someone to store it. So there's lots of nuances to what really happened. But yeah, like I say, for me, it's a question of whether it's fundamental or whether it's just a technical thing that happens. And I guess, finally, on a fun, purely on a fundamental perspective, if I look at there's a severe oversupply from the Saudi oil wars that have been happening. Um, some people were pointing to that as being the cause of what happened with WTI the other day. I disagree because actually last week, Saudi and uh, Russia came to an agreement. Not a lot of people maybe were aware of it, but actually that piece was some of the flames in terms of what were put out. So it should have been good news to the oil market, not bad news. Um, so there's the, but the severe oversupply still exists. Um, the main thing is that demand has been destroyed and decimated by the fact that nobody's driving, nobody's flying, no factories are open. So then that's not technical, that's pretty fundamental. And then I guess the other point is around the lack of capacity and storage, which, um, which nobody really thinks about. But actually, speaking again about indicators, so last week there was an indicator when the cost of offshore um, vessels more than trebled. This is before WTI, any of this happened. So this was an indicator before the indicator. So the cost of storing or hiring um, super tankers, well, it was like $230,000 a day. It doubled in a space of a few weeks. So this was already happening. So it's not necessarily just a technical thing about traders. It's something that's been slowly building up up to the point where the traders realize what was going on. And now the question is, what happens next? So if I yesterday, share prices fell, but... If I look at the disparity between what's happening with oil, a lot of people have been blaming Saudi, Russia, but if I look at what's been happening there versus what's been happening in the stock market, there's a discrepancy. One of them things, things are very, very terrible. The other one thinks things are just bad. So that needs to sort itself out in the next few weeks in terms of which one is right. Are we in a depression or are we just in a recession? Is this short term or is this longer term? Yeah, so that, that's my thoughts on the oil piece in particular. Right, that that is that is excellent, guys. Thank you, thank you very much for that. Next up on the agenda, we have put Sterling on there tentatively. Um, Rod, do you want to start with that one? A lot of this depends on actually what happens with other currencies, especially the dollar at the moment, and how how the pound is going to relate to that. In terms of the dollar and what that's doing, there's all sorts of stuff going on with regards to. China and uh, and what and what they're trying to do in terms of with their debt because um, there's a lot of offshore debt uh, which needs to be repaid back in dollars and so there's some various different things which I won't go into purely because I probably don't understand them well enough but I think there under my understanding I can I can see dollars kind of going up in the short term and the pound coming down followed by a bit of a sort of destruction of the dollar really. And I'm not too sure how the pound will behave with that. So I don't know is probably the simple answer. <laughs> I think that's a reasonable one. I think I'm just going to add briefly to that to say it's a, it's a measure of how much, just even in the financial press, how much other news there has been that we've hardly discussed sterling or seen much about sterling at all, mm. where it hit 114 to the dollar the other week, um, when, just when we'd announced our QE measures and all the rest of it. And it's back up to about 125. I just checked before we came on the call today. So it's like a lot of things at the moment, extremely volatile. Um, and to think the pound was worse off than it was at the worst point of 
the pre-Brexit, dare I mention the B word while we're talking about the C word, um, but the, the very fact that it, it's not even hardly scratched a headline tells you how much different stuff is going on. And it, I, I don't really understand that. I've said this before to the guys on this call. I, I don't really understand how the, uh, the pound has the position that it does against the euro or the dollar other than just the size of those currencies. But I'll hand over to the financial professionals. Kwesi, do you want to, uh, do you want to comment first on that one? I think the it's, it's, it had had a good rally up until today, hadn't it, over the last two weeks or so. And maybe the pressure of all of the stuff going on in the last few days or in the last 24, 20 hours is starting to tell. To your point, and I think we had this conversation before, the main thing is the size. So other one, other currencies, in, in bad times, other currencies are seen as more of a safe haven than sterling because they have a bigger balance sheet, if you like, a bigger... GDP to support them. So in that sense, I think it makes sense. But at the same time, it works both ways. Um, I think sterling typically, it overperforms on the downside, but also overperforms on the upside against some of the other currencies, particularly the euro. So it works both ways. Long term, I get the, the problem with currency, um, for me anyway, is that it's because it's so volatile, FX is so volatile, that it often doesn't necessarily represent what's actually going on. I'm more of a fundamentals type of person, and currency typically is more of a trader's tool as opposed to... And so I guess in the long run, I can only see that um, 125 to 135 is probably the range that we found since Brexit. And I think that's probably the stable range until something uniquely macro happens to the UK. But I, the traders will play with it, will go up and down. Um, the main thing is that if we have sustained low, obviously, if we have sustained low rates, that would hopefully boost a lot of the foreign direct investment. But also, the low interest rates will not be good for the currency because the, that will detract people from who want you know, a better yield from them, their return. So yeah, I think currency I normally take a macro view on. And sterling is not something that I worry about. It's not high on the list of risks, if you like, compared to some of the other stuff. It's an interesting point, isn't it? And Rupesh, I don't know if I don't want to steer your um, your direction too much on this one, but it is interesting to see and reflect maybe on how limited an effect the rather large devaluation of sterling had as we went through the last few years of the sort of post-referendum environment. So maybe that backs up what Quasi was just saying about you know, not, not be giving it too much priority here. You know, I, I think that that's right. I mean, I think also, I mean, statistically, major FX pairs are the closest thing to an efficient market and random walk that you'll that you'll get in financial markets. So I think sort of, you know, I think it's crazy. So I mean, it, it's difficult sort of, so you try, try and predict where is, you know, where is you know, your cable going to go or sterling euro. I mean, you're very, very difficult. But I think um, I, I'd probably be, uh, maybe I, I think maybe a little bit contrarian over a slightly longer horizon on this because I think you know it's it typically in any sort of uh, downturn financial crisis you know as Rod was saying you, you have this sort of safe haven flight um, you have this unwinding of sort of FX carry trades and um, you know particularly where you have lots of debt around the world taken out in dollars and everyone tries to pay down debt that's required to pay down debt in some in some instances you have kind of this this uh, extra demand for dollars. Um, so normally kind of your, your risk off behavior would be that the dollar would strengthen against most, uh, most currencies. And, and, and I think that's kind of, you know, 
probably behind the 114 uh, level that you mentioned on cable, you know, during the worst of the sort of coronavirus hit to financial markets. I think the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the reason I would maybe be a bit more constructive on sterling versus dollar and, and euro uh, comes down to what I think has been uh, a driver coming out of the last financial crisis, um, which is basically the, the timing and, and strength of policy response. So essentially, you know, the behavior between major currencies ultimately reflected at different times the strength of each central bank's quantitative easing program. So you know, during periods when the US central bank was more aggressive on QE than the euro, the dollar would appreciate, sorry, the dollar would depreciate uh, versus the euro. During periods when the ECB was going more heavily on QE, the dollar would be appreciating. And I think it's going to be the same here. It's going to come down to the strength you know, on a slightly longer horizon other than looking at that short-term flight to uh, kind of you know, dollar as safe haven. On a longer-term horizon, it's going to come down to relative size of quantitative easing programs. And I think that's where the Fed is going to be you know, you know, very you know, more aggressive to the extent they need to be. Um, you know, they're, they're looking at sort of an unlimited quantitative easing. And I think you know, that's something which you know, you know, you know, the, the consensus view on sterling would probably be negative and probably has been since Brexit. A lot of people thought that when you know, Brexit, you know, you know, even after you sort of uh, had the initial Brexit votes um, and sterling sort of went down, people still felt that it was going to reach parity against the dollar when you actually had you know, Brexit being implemented. And that hasn't really, really, really happened. I think you know, what, what will be more significant is the, the, you know, the size of Bank of England versus Fed uh, quantitative easing. And you know, my, my instinct on that would be that the Fed is going to be much more aggressive and has the capacity to do so given the reserve currency status. Than the UK and you know, the potential imported inflation that we could be creating, bad inflation essentially. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I mean, I think you know, I, I think it's a dangerous game to be forecasting uh, major FX pairs, but you know, I, I think it will come down to size of quantitative easing programs over a slightly longer horizon, uh, and I think probably the US will be more aggressive than than the UK on that. Would you expand that comment to include any asset purchasing, equity purchasing, all other stuff that's on the table at the moment? Um, the, the broadest view of QE, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I, I think that that's an area where I mean, you know, the Bank of England, ECB, you know, the Fed—they've all bought corporate bonds. Uh, again, I think the the Fed has, you know, the, you know, the ECB has been very generous in terms of uh, in in the past, you know, you know being willing to put, you know, purchase Greek state government guaranteed bonds issued by banks that were at the time insolvent. You know, the Fed has been uh, you know, pretty generous lately and being willing to buy. Junk bonds. So, you know, I, I think in mean, the UK has bought corporate bonds as well, as well. But, but I think also in terms of willingness to go down the risk spectrum, I think the Fed and the ECB have more willingness to you know, to do that. That's, you know, and that's just my my instinct. And obviously, that's this can all change. And I, you know, I, th- I think what you've experienced out of the last financial crisis is it's just a game of musical chairs. One central bank will be more aggressive on QE for a six to twelve month period, and then when, you know, and their currency will depreciate in that time. Then someone else picks up the baton, and, and their currency then depreciates, reversing the initial depreciation of the the other currency. So, I think it, 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 you know, to some extent it's kind of it's musical chairs game. Um, yeah. As long as people continue to you know, view paper currency issued by central banks as having value, so you know, I, I think uh, just look, you know, keep looking at QE uh, programs and you know, size and composition. Makes a lot of sense, I suppose. The only thing I'd put around that is. Uh, from my uninformed viewpoint, is that very much the the long term pressure on sterling has been downwards, 
you know, what, for the last 50 years, realistically, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's no real reason yeah. to see that changing. So it's the pace of change rather than the direction of travel to an extent that's the, yeah. that's uh, the thought. And I guess really. that's, that's what, why I sort of describe my views. Because, you know, I think here's somewhat contrarian because I think the yeah. consensus would be, you know, at some point, you know, Sterling is going to get, you know, yeah, you're crazy mentioned 125, 135. Yeah, I think that has been the range that, you know, those ranges can be broken. And I think people, if it's going to get broken, people would expect it to be to the downside, that parity is more likely than 150. Yeah. But. Makes a lot of sense. Okay, great. Well, that segues some of that nicely into our next point, which is around inflation generally. And um, when do you think it will start, if at all? And will it just be on cost of goods and services? Um, and when do you think economic growth will pick up? So just do that in two parts and just address the inflation generally first. I personally think that there's going, there's kind of there's a twofold pressure here because we talked about the different basket earlier on, which is handy. I think there's the also the the, the unevidenced bit yet around will we will we have a maybe a a slight temporary culture shift where we turn away from being a sort of breakneck speed consumer society and people do hoard cash a bit more. It'll be really interesting to see how people have deployed their furlough scheme money if they're on the furlough scheme and whether they've been trying to just keep expenses down to next to nothing um, while they've been under you know enforced lockdown there's obviously these sort of sterling pressure on imports um, I think one of the things it made me think of was what happened post-referendum and then I was expecting higher inflation I must say because of the the sort of 15 to 20% overnight depreciation in the currency. And what we actually saw was inflation touch near 4% um, or at 4% over that period. That was only temporary. And it actually came back down towards Bank of England target a little quicker than everyone would have expected without any particular tweaking in the base rate, although the base rate was obviously was raised um, back to 0.75 at one point, um, which was where we were before we went into the whole coronavirus situation. But I can see, I think it was fair to say, we, we talked about this at the time, um, there was some some of that hit on the pound versus the the dollar particularly was, it made the press at the time, you know, Tesco and Unilever had a bit of a ding-dong about it, about contracts they already had for supply. And actually Tesco pretty much took a fair bit of pain on that, as I understand it, and cut some margins on some, some products and that's been evidenced in the supermarket um, margins being trimmed ever ever smaller than they have been in the past and big uh, the big chain struggling to make money in the big stores and only really running the um, the smaller convenience metro and local and express brands as the profitable parts of the empire whilst looking to try and shift some of the bigger sites on or change them into multi-purpose so I wonder if we've we've fired the bullet in that chamber and Tesco and the likes haven't really got any further to go and therefore a further depreciation in the exchange rate will be somewhat inflationary um, on top of that and we feel more of that pain relatively than we did before. In terms of economic growth picking up, I think there's going to be an extent to which, you know, if you fall, Quasi's made this point before, I know, but, you know, if you, if you do drop 20 30% very quickly just because you're back on the rise doesn't put you in good shape. So I'm very wary about sort of seeing economic growth in inverted commas. We've got, as, as Rupesh said earlier on, potentially, you know, we're supporting an overly large economy, potentially at the moment, because of the shrinkage that there'll be 
with things like the furlough scheme. I do wonder if the government's sort of slightly punted that people who aren't on PAYE are much more flexible, which is true by definition, um, but PAYE employees are, are much more valued in terms of their long-term value to a business, but certainly some of the business owners I'm talking to are not necessarily looking at it or talking like that. So I think there's, there's a concern there. So I think nominal growth will return in this calendar year, probably end of Q3, early Q4, but whether that's a good thing from a, from a terribly low base, I'm not so sure. Can I go to you next on that one, please, Kwesi? No, those are very good points, Adam. I think on the, on the inflation point, I like the point you made about supermarkets. One of the interesting things, COVID-wise, is that I think that's going to change. So in terms of the whole, what we're talking about, what Rupes mentioned about the, how the basket is going to change, I think that change in the basket is going to impact the margins of some of these retailers. Just how, not just that, but just how the whole demand side of the economy is going to shift in any post-lockdown period that we're going to. The basket is going to change, what we do is going to change, how we behave to some extent is going to have to change in order to avoid. Um, so yeah, so that's interesting. The inflationary impact of that though is a bit more difficult and more tricky. I, to your point, and maybe I want to talk more about this, to your point, so if we look at things like the furlough stuff, how are people being furloughed going to spend their money? As I mentioned, I've been doing a lot of research onto this. So actually, this is this is quite interesting for me. Historically, at least, or typically, when people get government payments, whether they be things like universal credit, benefits, even things like pensions, states' payments to people typically have the same effect, actually. What, will happen, what tends to happen is they have a short-term, the, the inflation rises short-term as a result of non-discretionary costs going up. So if your energy company knows that everybody's going to be at home and they're going to be getting 80%, well, we're not exactly going to keep our prices down. The usage is going to go up. We might as well tweak our prices up a bit more because of capacity issues. Broadband providers, where you have unlimited free broadband and we're only using it to 20% capacity, now we're using it to 120% capacity. So guess what's going to happen in the next round? Broadband prices are probably going to go up. So these people who are furloughed and are at home, actually what they're going to realize the basket has changed, but actually a lot of the fixed costs have gone up. These are non-discretionary spends, so they don't have a choice about it. So I think those are going to have inflationary effect. But on the flip side, a lot of the discretionary spend is way, way down. So, I mean, I know that before lockdown, I used to get takeaways maybe four or five times a week. I haven't had any takeaways since I've been locked down. So... The, the, what Rupesh was talking about before in terms of the, the, um, how the amount of staff the takeaways, the way they operate, but also the amount of staff they have and what the staff do, where they might have had a, 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 a eat-in service, now it would be a delivery-only service. You need less staff who are going to do different things, which is going to have an impact. So when the demand, Rupesh mentioned when the demand resets, so I, I personally don't think this is something that the stock market in particular is factoring in, that there is a reset going on and the, 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 I think a lot of, if you look at the stock prices and how they perform, they were reaching similar levels to where we were before for some, especially the FANG companies. But not just the FANG, the demand is not going to be the same. So you can't price them the same way that you were pricing it before. And I think people who not necessarily, the market definitely isn't necessarily fully appreciating that. Maybe the oil market is, that's why it's tanking. But the, the whole idea is actually the whole demand element is going to reset, which is going to have an interesting impact on inflation. Some, some disinflationary like we first mentioned and some inflationary and the question is going to be how that all balances out personally 
this is a person, I think in the short term, we're going to get short term inflation. As the fixed costs, as I mentioned, going up, people are going to spend discretionarily, even though they don't have the money. The people furloughed are probably all over Amazon right now. They don't realize they're only getting 80%. They think they're still on 100%. So they're, and they don't realize that their broadband prices are going up next month. So they think they were still on 100% and they don't realize their prices are going up. So in three months' time, when they've already bought everything on Amazon and the prices go up, they're actually going to be in a worse position. Similar to the whole point about GDP. When you fall and you rise, just because you're on the rise doesn't mean you're where you would have been otherwise. So they're going to realize in probably about three months that actually, hey, um, my disposable income is down, my fixed costs are up, and that's going to have a disinflationary impact on the economy in the medium term. So yeah, I think in the short term, we're probably going to get some form of inflation. Then again, you do, I think one of the interesting things is everything that's happened in the past around inflation, we've got, we touched on 4% briefly, then dropped back down. We've been at around 2%, less than between 1% and 2%, I guess. But all of that has been in this context of low, ultra low interest rates, quantitative easing, and all of those things. And they haven't, in the EU, Eurozone is a good example because they've been at lower rates of inflation. They've been desperate for some inflation. They'd be desperate for 1% inflation like we've been getting. But all of the stuff that we've been done that's happened in the economies have been disinflationary. So if I look historically, I find it hard to see that inflation is all of a sudden going to go up if I look at what's been happening in the last 10 years. But at the same time, I think we're now entering a new phase where things like people getting direct payments, people being paid not to work, all of that will have a different impact going forward. So maybe that could be inflationary. Broadly speaking, I can't see the broader basket or the existing basket becoming more, much more expensive. I can see the new basket becoming much more expensive, if that makes sense. It does make sense. It's interesting, interesting points. And some of those just shows you how difficult it is to know which way to go at the moment and some stuff. Rupesh, do you want to add to that, mate? Yeah, no, I think a lot, a lot of great points. I think, I mean, you know, if you just come back to sort of the consumption basket and I guess, you know, if I just look at our family as an example, I mean, you know, I think Quasar is exactly, exactly right that the cost of sort of non-discretionary spend has gone up and there's a reduction in discretionary spend. So, Whereas before we were probably spending £200 on our weekly uh, grocery shop, we're now spending 350 to 400 And that sort of 150 to 200 I guess we would have quite easily have been spending previously on, uh, you know, eating at restaurants, you know, two, three times a week and, uh, you know, and some weekend entertainment for the kids, whatever, you know, whatever that would be. So I think net on a net basis, I think we're probably spending less than before. Uh, but there's a, you know, there's a very big uh, shift in composition and, uh, you know, I, th- I think I, I think a lot of points about sort of the you know the, the actual sort of prov- your production cost of some of these staples will have gone up. I think the other element here is you know the, the you know the home delivery shopping you know for the supermarkets, which um, you know clearly everyone wants more home delivery. Uh, the supermarkets don't really have the capacity for it, and ultimately that will get reflected at some point in in, in pricing. I think the other part of that on a global level is you know, a contraction. I think in global trade. So you know, the extent to which we feel freely sort of purchase from you know China and other emerging markets, uh, I mean I think you know, you know Donald Donald Trump sort of set the the start for this with instigating trade wars you know against pretty much everyone. But I think at some point there's going to be a reset of uh, global trade. Um, so you know all the deflationary pressure that you've had for you know 30 years or so from China and emerging markets, I kind of wonder whether part of that is going to kind of get taken out and. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I definitely think that in the short term things are deflationary, disinflationary. 
But I think when you sort of look about, you know, you look at sort of monetary fiscal policy, reduction in global trade, increase in sort of production cost of staples, I, I can see sort of, uh, and on, on oil, obviously, you know, the other part that we've touched on before, I, 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 you know, I can kind of see some potential for inflation further down the line. Now, when is that? I think, you know, ties in with when economic growth picks up. And I, I think kind of my base case is increasingly that we're going to be in a fairly neg- you know, low to negative growth environment for, uh, you know, I think, you know, 2020 and probably well into 2021. I think there's no easy solution to coronavirus. I think kind of the longer we persist with lockdown, the, the, you, know, you know, the more sort of pressure there's going to be on uh, on growth and the sustainability of government policy. So I think kind of, you know, you know if, if a vaccine comes along and, you know, change that, that's clearly, you know, you know, clearly great. But I think, you know, if you tighten with sort of bear markets in uh, risky assets, you know, they tend to run for the best part of two years, really. So I kind of think the, you know, the markets will anticipate a pickup in growth. But if we've, just, you know, if we've recently started a bear market, that could last well into 2021, uh, particularly, as you said, crazy, that the you know, your markets haven't necessarily reflected that there's some permanent demand destruction that's been done. Um, the level, you know, the, level, the potential level of corporate earnings has maybe sort of come down. The other part of this is, you know, markets don't necessarily always care about earnings. And, and, and the sort of post-financial crisis experience is a testament to this, that, you know, a lot of it is driven by corporate buybacks. And, you know, if, if people think that companies are going to have easy access to, to money, uh, and as they start to get more confident, they'll just start buying back more and more equity. Just to touch on that. So this is, you made some really great points. I think um, I'll pick up on the corporate buybacks point, first of all. Really interesting. I agree to the point, though, where a lot of, the, especially in America, a lot of the conditions that they're attaching to some of the bailouts include things like avoiding corporate buybacks. So I think that would be interesting in terms of um, yeah. what we talked about rollback how all of that gets rolled back. Yeah. You mentioned supply chains. I think that's a great point as well in terms of the inflationary impact of um, a lot of, uh, some of the stuff actually that I'm looking at now, which is going to come into effect probably in the next two years, is around sustainability of supply chains. So the EU, for example, this has moved right up to the top of their agenda all of a sudden. It's around, from a sustainability, Rob, we spoke about sustainability in the past on your podcast uh, previously, and the concept is being driven by the EU, but more from a supply chain. So we've gone from environmental to supply chain sustainability. So I think in the long run that a lot of these supply chains are going to have to be brought back. Um, there's going to be the inflationary additions to those as you look at your supply chain, look at actually what you need to now have onshore as opposed to offshore. So yeah, that's the, I think you're right. In terms of deflation, inflation, all of those things are going to be inflationary in the long term. Brilliant, brilliant both. Thank you very much. Rod, if it's okay with you, because I know everyone's under time pressure on this call and we've only got five minutes left, I'm going to canvas the guys on um, the last point on the agenda, which is around um, local housing allowance and property specific. So ultimately, to give that a bit of background, local housing allowance rates have gone, have been repriced. They've been frozen for five years. And on on the 1st of April, they were fairly quietly repriced to the 30th percentile of the market rent, which we might then see as a bit of a, a flaw on the rental side of things, which bolsters yields in certain areas as well. Help to buy has been extended. That's driven the first time buyer market for years. And also over 50% of residential properties are owned outright. So we're bearing in mind that the availability of credit, whilst important, is not the only fruit. And, you know, 
only in in the top 20 cities of the UK, only about 20% loan to value is financed by mortgage debt. What do you think will happen to house prices in general? And do you think any of the above provides any sort of safety net slash security to any price drops? Um, can you start on that one, Kwesi? Is that okay, please? Yeah, definitely. Thanks. I think the the help to buy one is really important because especially if you look at it from a macro picture, support a lot of the house builders for a really long time. They basically gave them a market and a floor, a government subsidy, in effect, for a lot of their projects that they were doing. So I think help to buy is double-edged in that it helps people get onto the market, but I don't know if it helps them because it actually has an inflationary impact on the house prices, so they have to pay more. To your point, affordability is probably more important, or one of the more important, other important factors, as opposed to just um, access to finance. So affordability is going to be key, I think, especially even to looking at just even the buying market, but the rental market. I'm more in the rental space, so that's more interesting to me. The local housing allowance piece in my market is only slightly helpful, to be honest, because um, in anywhere where I have council tenants, the tenants has to subsidize whatever the council is contributing because it's below the local rent anyway. Um, so LH, LHA is good that it's gone up because it means my tenants will have to contribute less, which should hopefully offer them some security, but it doesn't boost my yields, sadly. I wish it did. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, that, that I, I think that the, personally, I think LHA should be regional. I don't understand why there's a, such a fixed approach to it. Um, should be purely regional and well not purely but it should be looking at the regional conditions and offering that on that basis but yeah everywhere where I have tenants on LHA they have to pay I think another 20% on top of what the council is paying Okay and Rupesh would you like to add to that? Yeah, I, mean, I think you know. I'm obviously not the the property investor here, so you know, probably giving forecast on the property prices is, is dangerous. But I think definitely echo some of the sentiments uh, Quasi mentioned there on sort of help to buy is, is ultimately helping some of these people to you know to buy sort of property at prices that wouldn't necessarily be sustained in the in, in the free market with more debt. I mean, I think you know, for me that you know, I think everyone sort of would talk about unemployment and income and i guess we've talked about a lot about that on this podcast but i i think the other, other element which crazy to touch on there is availability of financing because i my view on sort of you know, certainly the owner occupied market is you know people always want to buy houses and the price that they're willing to pay ultimately comes down to the terms on which the bank will lend people will pay whatever price for property you know to, to the extent the banks will lend that money so i think kind of that you know that that's sort of a, a key component of this i, I think um, if, if I was sort of analogize versus sort of my expectations for other asset classes, you know, my, my base case has been sort of um, that we've more or less touched the lows in equities. And, I'd, and, and, and that's kind of uh, sort of my 60% scenario. So I, I do think that things right now have come back too far, too fast in equities. I think the, S, I think the S&P sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the lows and the futures were around sort of 2000, mid 2100s. You know, and you know, we obviously rallied to north of 2,800 uh, you know, recently and it's cooled off a bit. I do expect us to test those lows again before this is all over. And sort of in my downside scenario, I'd say 60% likely that we're going to get there, 40% likely that we're going to see a lot lower. And a lot lower would be a 70% peak to trough movement on major equity indices, which on the S&P would take you from sort of high 3,300s down to about 1,000. Um, you know, so, so I think there's, there is a, you know, there's a, there's a chart, clear chance of that. Um, and that's obviously a very, very bad state of the world. And I think if you 
look at house prices in either of those two scenarios. I think if you're in the 60% sort of scenario where you know, we've more or less seen the lows, but we're going to, in my view, see them again, uh, and then subsequently rebound more sustainably. I think in that kind of world, um, the kind of mm, sort of national level of house price decline that you might see, I think, is maybe of the order of magnitude of sort of high single digits, maybe around 10%. Okay. And I think Wait. if you're in the, uh, even the scenario of 70% peak drop movement in uh, major equity indices, then uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would think that you could be looking at 20% on national house prices. And obviously, there's going to be huge variation uh, across uh, you know, geographically and also across income bands. So I think. You know, probably the you know the, the sort of higher income part of this could could get hit uh, you know, pretty hard. Makes a lot of sense and doesn't sound too disappointing when you compare ten to twenty percent as a range between rather than thirty five to seventy percent. So, Rod, do you want to say anything in closing because that's pretty much our, our time up? Yeah. So, I mean, at the at the lower end, I definitely think there's going to be a flaw because if you've got a property in a decent demand area so good schools, et cetera, and the LHA rate provides a decent yield, then I just can't see those yields going too much higher due to house prices coming down. So that's from an investment point of view. So for example, if you've got a property that the LHA rate gives you eight grand a year uh, in that area that's in demand, then the idea that the price will drop below a seven or 8% yield, so a hundred grand, will obviously depend on what other available yields with similar perceived risks of other investments there are at the time. And I just can't see there being much in the way that's going to beat that. Now, bear in mind that obviously liquidity might be another factor, but I see that being the price to pay for the lack of volatility compared to those other investments. And even unleveraged, um, that's still decent. So when you factor in the opportunity to actually leverage that, even if it's at 60% or or even sometimes lower, and if there's finance available, as, as Rupesh kind of touched on, then I think it's going to be even more positive. However, when you're looking at, say, higher value areas, such as London, I think it's going to be a much tougher to call because LHA rates are still not bad for average properties, but as you get to higher value properties, they've there's just so much disparity. So from an investment point of view, it's, it's not great at all. From a home ownership point of view, and in terms of private rents as well, it's massively reliant on incomes, as we've already talked about, and affordability. And um, affordability comes in two forms, in the upfront cost and the servicing cost. And so I can't see that growing very high. Uh, so I'd, I'd agree certainly on the, on the price uh, decrease there in the short term. Uh, of, the, of those higher value areas as well. But I would just caveat this all by, and, and Kwesi and Amrubesh touched on the help to buy, but I'd, I'd just look out for some government intervention there, such as other, other uh, things you could think of could be reduced stamp duty, more shared ownership schemes, such as help to buy, obviously that's been extended, um, but also longer term mortgages. So moving from the norm of 30 year, 35 mortgage, to 40, 50 year mortgages. And that's what's happened in other countries. And that kind of keeps these house prices inflated. So um, I, would, I would just say, keep an eye on that. But I definitely think at the upper end, we're going to see the drop uh, being the furthest and the, and the fastest. I, can, yeah, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And ultimately, if you look at everything since post global financial crisis, you've seen much more volatility in London than you've seen in the lower, the higher yielding lower value areas where it's very, very boring stuff and it plods on at sort of 3%, 4% a year. 
doesn't get a lot more exciting than that. But the flip side of that is you're reasonably well protected on the downside because the waves are just shorter. But I think there's a really good point around intervention. Um, and this is the perfect excuse, isn't it, for credit expansion potentially. So, folks, we'll, we'll leave it there because I know we could go on for a long time and it would be fantastic if we did this again. I hope we do soon. Um, but I'll wrap it up because I know people have got to get on other calls and everything. Just remains to thank Kwasia um, from Rupesh Taylor, Rod Turner, very much for your time. Thanks, everyone, for participating. And we'll try and get another one together in a couple of weeks' time, if everyone's willing. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.